uh, good morning. I want to dismiss our school-age kids to the back with their teachers to go and be encouraged and strengthen the word this morning. Let's honor and obey kids back there. Have a great day. Um, good times. In case you don't know, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Church, and I am thrilled to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we start a series, uh, I guess beginning of the year, entitled The Way of Jesus, in which we're looking at, in a sense, um, how we as a people in 2020 can walk in the same ways of Jesus. What this really is, is this series, it is a callback to a real vision of what discipleship can look like in our day. A real vision that our life is meant to be lived for more than just kind of going to church and getting to Fridays, right? It's more than that. There is a great purpose for our lives and that we can literally walk in the power and the ways of Jesus. And we looked at that, that that happens through really three directions, three loves of our lives. We walk up with the Father, right? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the greatest commandment. But also we go out, we love our neighbor as ourself in the power of the Spirit, but also in this other commandment, God says to love each other, to love the church so that the world can know the Father's love for us. To love God, to love each other, and to love the world. We see these three directions of up and in and out. And we talked about how to really, to look up. That essence of following God is just to look up, to be aware of how God is at work. And our response of how we pursue God is to hear and obey the voice of God. That's the primary way that we look up. And then last Sunday, Luke talked about this idea of leaning in. When it's hard, when it's messy, when there's confusion, we don't like each other, when you're different, all those things are true of us, correct? We lean in. And today for a few moments, I want to look at, not a few, about 30 minutes, okay, honestly, not a few moments. For about 30 minutes, we're going to look at, probably 40 minutes, to be honest with you, about 40 minutes, we're going to look at what it looks like. You know, we live in a very individualized world, correct? Like, I can go on my phone in about an hour and get anything in the world. I can get food, get groceries, I can get a TV. I can find information, I can read a book, and I can do it with earphones in my ears and nobody bothering me. It's kind of blissful on some level, isn't it? So how do we in this kind of a world learn how to actually lean in, to practically move in? Let's go to Ephesians 4. And Luke read this to us a few moments ago. And what you see in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, when we first started the church, it's the first book that Luke walked us through. So I have many fond memories. Through the book of Ephesians, I, I got married. Probably had my first kid in that book. And so it's like very like, you know, all these kind of memories come flooding back as I read this book. But chapters 1 through 3 are like this just beautiful picture of this cosmic 30,000 foot view of how God has saved humanity. And how he's making us one. But in chapter 4 here, you see the kind of, you see Paul turning. You see him talking to the church at Ephesus and he's turning their attention to, okay, okay God has done all of this. And then we see here in verse 1, therefore. 
Therefore, walk in this way. Walk in this manner. Paul's now instructing the church and us today to, th- in light of what God has done, as we look up, right, and we see all that God has done through Jesus, now we as a people lean in and respond, correct? And he says, walk in this manner. Then Paul walks through just this beautiful picture of oneness. Let me read it again. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen? That we are one. Paul's talking to people that are Jews and Gentiles that are completely separated, but he's saying you are one. Lean in. Walk in this way. But in the midst of this chapter, of this section, Paul gives us a glimpse of the things that take us away from this unity, from this oneness, that take us away from what all that God has us to be. Look at verse 14 in chapter 4. He says here, so that we may no longer be children. Paul is exhorting the church, encouraging the church to no longer walk in immaturity. Let's keep going. To be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul paints a picture here of immaturity. A picture of being a baby, a child, or a teenager spiritually. Being young and immature in the faith. And as I was thinking through this, and Leighton, I apologize for this, but um, me and Leighton have been friends for a long time. And um, lots of fun stories. And back in high school, um, we used to go to church on Wednesday nights. We were good church boys, really good church boys. No girls around, just me and Leighton. And... Here it goes. And so after church on Wednesday nights, we would go to one, each other's house and we would watch Dawson's Creek every Wednesday night for like three or four years. It's a true story. That's Leighton. And um, it's really embarrassing to think about. And about a month ago, me and Tracy are watching TV, streaming something, and I see Dawson's Creek. I'm like, oh, let's turn this on for a minute. And I watched this for about 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes, Especially Dawson, he's the worst. This character literally has these huge ups and downs. He's happy, he's crying, he's mad, he's crazy. It's this picture, honestly, of immaturity. And as a 38-year-old man, man, right? 38-year-old man. That's my former way, Dawson's Creek. And I'm a man, right? I, I look back at that way of life, and the truth is we watched that show And I can relate to that character because I was that character. I was up. I was down. But I just cringed thinking about my former ways. The former youthfulness of being, y'all know this, right? Of being up, of being down all the time. And this is the picture that Paul is showing us. When When you're tossed to and fro, what that means is you have no power, right? When I wrestle my kids, I toss them to and fro because they have no power. It's a powerless, inconsequential life. And Paul is teaching us, the church in Ephesus, all of us, to be aware of this. 
to run from this kind of life, the to and fro life. I guess the question I want to start with today is don't you want more for your life than that? Because here's the truth. Some of us, at some level, we're still tossed to and fro, correct? There is this constant journey in our faith of, of going up into Christ and becoming more and more and more secure. But all of us have one degree left to change, correct? But aren't we tired on some level of this life of being tossed to and fro? So Paul keeps talking here about the things that we're tossed by. He says we're tossed by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what is this doctrine for us today? What are the schemes that the enemy is using to toss us to and fro today? And I wrote down two things, two doctrines that take us away from God and the unity of our faith. And the first is this right here. It's the doctrine of external change. The doctrine of external change. Where is this right here? I simply need to learn more things from the Bible, to learn more things from the Bible, and then change some habits of my life, and then I'll be good to go. I just got to learn a few more things, learn a few more how-tos, and then apply those how-tos to my life. Once I do that, I'll be the Christian that everybody looks up to. I'll be fully mature. And I'm telling you now today, we are tossed to and fro by this doctrine. Here's why. Because it sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds so good if I'm just debt-free, right? If I just can superficially love my wife and my kids, right? If I can just kind of just grit and bear and do these things, then I look fully mature in the faith. But it's only the appearance of godliness. It's the external. It's the appearance. It's the way we want things to look. But inside, inside, right, we're wasting away. That's what Jesus says about this outside of the cup, this external stuff in Matthew 23. He goes after the Pharisees here in verse 25. Well, all throughout this section here, but in verse 25 it says this. Woe to you. (laughs) It's not good. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, the thing nobody sees, right? Inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Folks, we walk into this, don't we? That we many times are more concerned with how we look than who we are, correct? And this doctrine of today that is all throughout the history of the world, but today this doctrine is tossing us to and fro. Because here's why, this doctrine has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with us getting better so that we can have our best life now. A better marriage, better finances, better parenting. We are gaining the whole world, right, while our soul wastes 
away, while we forfeit our soul, as Jesus says, because we're being tossed to and fro by a weak doctrine, a smaller doctrine. So we're tossed to and fro by this doctrine doctrine of the external life. But also we're tossed to and fro by the doctrine of individualism. It's this idea that I can pursue God and grow spiritually on my own. I can pursue God and change externally on my own. It's this idea that as I grow in my maturity, as I become more mature in my faith, I need other people less. That we mark maturity by how much we don't need people. And that is completely counter to the doctrines we see in the scriptures. And it's a doctrine that is tossing us to and fro. Life, we did a study in 2019. And they asked Christians all across, all across the country how they grow spiritually. And over half the people said they did not need others to grow spiritually. Over half the people. And if, if, if we're honest today, that's true for us, isn't it, on some level? Like, yes, we come to church. We might go to a small group. We might do these kind of maybe superficial things. But in the heart of hearts, we think the private spiritual disciplines are the ones that are most important. And I'm not throwing those out. Those are hugely important. But they're not all that we need. Part of our issue here is we define maturity incorrectly. We define maturity by who knows the most and needs people the least. Because if I ask you up here to come teach next week, you say, well, I don't know enough. Well, I can't do this, right? We define maturity by who knows the most and who needs people the least. And what's funny about that, that is completely counter to the way of Jesus, isn't it? Who was interdependent on other people. Not independence, which is a Western value, correct? But the church of Jesus Christ, kingdom values, the ways of Jesus lead us towards each other and not being independent of each other. Let's go to verse 11 here. We start seeing how Paul defines this for us, of what is this kind of picture of maturity. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. He gave the leaders of the church, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the role of the leadership, the pastors of a church, the leaders of a church are to equip the saints, the body for the work of ministry. In verse 13, until we all, it's this kind of consistent pouring and pouring and developing for the life of a church until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. A healthy, mature man and woman in Christ. There's two things it says here. There's the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith is this marker of this mature man and woman of the faith. And there's also this knowledge of the Son of God. It's this relationship with God. It's leaning in and it's looking up are these markers of maturity in our faith. This maturity, uh, this growth, this direction, if, you're, if you put your faith in Christ today, this is the goal of your life. This is the goal of your life. 
and there's practices and disciplines to walk in this way, to walk in the goals. And here's my challenge today. Each of us in this room have goals in our life. Don't know everybody's goals. We all have kind of goals, directions for our lives. And we do things, we sacrifice things, we lose sleep, we lose money to pursue those goals. That's right and that is good. Here's what I'm saying today. The greatest goal to give your life to, to lose money for, to give your time to, to sacrifice for, is this goal right here. It's this vision of discipleship. It's walking into and in the ways of Jesus for the purpose Go to verse 16 real quick in Ephesians 4. As Paul ends this section, it's a great picture of this fleshed out. He says here, from the whom the whole body, just mention our little church in this room right now, with the whole body joined and held together by every joint. That's a picture of unity that makes me feel uncomfortable. That we're so joined together, working together. There's this beautiful, supernatural thing happening. Let's keep going. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When us unified, awkward, pushing through, we're all one in Christ, are working together, living out how God has wired us to live in this messy life, right? When we're doing this in love, this beautiful thing happens. Our body grows we start to look more like God's kingdom here on earth. Does that make sense? It's this beautiful picture of up and in and out that we are called to be. And I just want to encourage us, this is the point of our life. It is not making more money. It's not just having more kids, buying a house, retiring, doing fun things. This is the goal of the Christian's life. So this is the goal, right? What what is the discipline or the practice or even the tool to help us walk in this this maturity of oneness, of unity, of life together, of leaning in, and this maturity of being built into Christ? Let's go to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Paul ends this kind of section on oneness with this great picture of us being built together, correct? But we see a weapon here. We see a tool. We see a discipline that Paul instructs the church to use. And the thing about like tools or or, or weapons and all these kind of, I think we know this thing. There's a difference between knowing something and being proficient at using it. For example, if I had a gun right now, we're all scared of it right now, if I have a a gun, I know what a gun is. I know how to use a gun. You pull a trigger, right? That's what you do with a gun, correct? I know those things, but I am in no way proficient at those things, tool, anything like that. But this is the tool. This is the way, one of the ways that Paul exhorts the church and us today to walk in this. And here it is. You see it right here in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. As the leaders, as the apostles, the shepherds, as they equip the body, the body then, in this beautiful picture of jointness and leaning in, we speak the truth in love together in all of life. We have bought this lie that if we just hear truth, 
with some love from a pastor on a Sunday that somehow it'll get down to the, to the very depths of our soul. That has never been the way this thing works. This is fleshed out in the messiness of life as we, broken brothers and sisters in Christ, speak the truth and love. And this truth and love nourishes our soul, points us up to Christ, and helps us to not walk to and fro. This is the good news of the gospel in God's church. This is how Jesus lived his life, correct? He lived his life. And the words we use at this church many times are these words right here, invitation and challenge. Jesus lived an inviting life and a challenging life. Paul lived with the people he was discipling. Does that make sense? How many meals did they share? How many fights were there? How many times did they laugh or get tired or get hungry or get hurt together? Jesus, the Son of God, lived this inviting life. I think about him and Peter, right? In this one chapter, he tells Peter, Peter, on you, you are the rock that I will build my church. Can you imagine the Son of God giving a more encouraging or inviting statement to someone, right? I bet Peter could jump over the moon at that moment. But literally verses later, he says, Peter says something stupid, and Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. Verses late later, it's this picture as Jesus is walking with Peter, walking with his disciples of invitation and challenge. Invitation is really this. It's pursuing people with love and living with a patience present, patient presence in their lives. It's living with love and this patient presence in their lives. It's really this picture of saying, I love you and I'm not going anywhere. Now, challenge, we talk about challenge, we all get nervous, don't we? Don't want to challenge anybody, make them feel awkward. Listen, I get that. I'm, I'm very similar in that. Here's what challenge really is. It's challenging people by pointing them towards Jesus. See, we think of challenge as finding every character flaw or preference flaw or weird haircut that a person has and speaking truth and love about those things, correct? But at the core of this, what does he say here? Look at verse 15 again. We are to grow up in every way into him. It's pointing people to Jesus. That is the challenge that we need as brothers and sisters in Christ. I need you when I am out of line to point me to my only hope, which is Jesus. Now, what happens is many times we have, we're all wired a certain way. And even churches or small groups are wired a certain way. Now, some people, like me, are wired for high invitation, right? Oh, come on, let's hang out. Let me encourage you, brother. We share some meals. We laugh together. We do all these things. But there's just no challenge. There is no pointing towards Jesus, our only hope. It's just us kind of doing life together. When that happens... We have this cozy culture. Well, look, we're all kind of happy, but we're going nowhere, correct? And we're all called for much more than that. We're not that verse 16 body building itself up in love. We're something else. We're kind of just going down the river, being tossed to and fro, correct? Maybe a lazy river, right? But we're being tossed to and fro. It's this cozy culture. But also, there's this kind of the flip side of that, correct? It's this, man, I love the word. Let's just preach the word. 
Let's just preach Jesus once a week. The rest of my life, leave me alone. I'm going to tell you about God, but the rest of my life, just leave me alone. It's this high challenge, low imitation culture. And that leaves this like really, really just kind of cold place where like people might like know the word, but they don't know each other. And that beautiful word of God is not fleshed out in all of life. And both of these things leave us being tossed to and fro, don't they? And here's what I want to tell you today. Both of these extremes exist in our church, in our small groups, in your life, in my life. And many times we are tossed to and fro from this, correct? Can we say that today? Is that okay? That many times we are tossed to and fro. But the goal, this picture of this body building itself up in love, this picture of high invitation and high challenge. And this has been fleshed out in my life uh, in, in, in seasons, in moments, in days, weeks. When someone knows me in such a way where, I, here's how I, how I describe it, when I know that I'm loved. Like, you know, that I would call it parental love. Listen, you can make a lot of folks mad, but a lot of times mom and dad aren't leaving you, correct? It's that parental love where I am not going anywhere. But then, Jason, this right here is wrong. That picture of invitation and challenge, when it's fleshed out, when we learn to use this tool, this discipline of the faith. And here's my kind of my challenge today, is that we would learn how to place this in a proper place. That we don't think of it as kind of like a, some aside thing that, yeah, if we get together and we do this, that's great. But these other things are primary, right? Listen, we have learned our entire lives the discipline of reading God's word. I am not pushing that aside at all. We should be saturated with God's word. It should be living with us, correct? The discipline of prayer, yes and amen. The discipline of serving each other, yes and amen. The discipline of gathering for worship, yes and amen. But if we as a people, as the people of God, do not know how to exist together in life, in community, as, as a discipline of our lives, and at the same time use the truth of the gospel to encourage each other, we're going to keep being tossed to and fro. Because here's why, is we desperately need somebody in our lives to see the dark corners and crevices of our souls and to speak truth and love into those areas. Because as a pastor on stage, we cannot do that. But your brother and sister in Christ, they can. So the question is, what does this look like? How do we live lives of invitation and challenge? Let's keep going. How do we live a life of invitation? First, with an open spirit. There has to be an open spirit. Listen, we live in a day and age, what I would call is that we live with a poser spirit, correct? That I only allow you to see what I want you to see so that I can look best. It's the Instagram spirit, isn't it? Put the best lighting, the best filter, so you see none of my flaws. You know, the, the, the funny thing is, if I'm being honest, I learned the practice of openness through counseling. I learned this practice through counseling. Y'all feel this? When you go to a person, they can't tell anybody your stuff, right? You're paying for it. You're there for an hour. There's nothing else to do. So, all right, we're going to be open for an hour. And I learned this practice, honestly, through being known through counseling. And listen, I am for counseling. I am pro-counseling. Counseling has encouraged me in some ways saved my life. But I will tell you this, many times counseling is not needed if the church is being the church. I, I sat down um, with an older gentleman this week. 
that is very, very sick. Um, I, I wouldn't say he's on his deathbed, but he's probably close. And uh, I know this man as being old, grumpy, doesn't like me to people. That's, that's what I know of this man. And so I, I come in just to see him and pray for him. And in the next hour, he is weeping to me and telling me just things from 50 years ago in his life. And it hit me. There's not been one friend in this man's life to let him just kind of speak open and honestly. And his soul had like just gotten very, very bitter and angry. Because when we're not open, right, we become bitter. We have to practice this spirit of openness. Ephesians 4, verse 1 again. Paul shows us two qualities that are needed for true unity and for real openness. Verse 2, he says this. With all humility and gentleness. Think of these kind of being like two sides of the coin of openness. Humility and gentleness. From my experience, it's true in my life on some level as well. Most people do not practice this idea of humility and, uh, and gentleness until... They're really, really sick, they're on a deathbed, or they've blown it in a moral failure. When you get people in that experience, they're very humble and they're very gentle because they are broken down by the weight of their life and their sin. Either the sickness, the death, the, uh, the failure, whatever it might be, puts a jolt to the system that breaks them and leads them to humility and gentleness. And at that moment, they're open. Listen, we need to be humble enough to open ourselves up. It takes humility to share struggles and sins with other people, correct? We need humility to do that, but we also need gentleness when someone shares those deep, dark, secret sins to us to be gentle with them. Does that make sense? Humble enough to share, gentle enough to really care for them. As we put on this gentleness and humility, it leads to an open spirit. Listen, I don't think we're like open to like 20 people. Don't leave here today and find your like random neighbor and tell them your deep, dark sins. Don't do that. That's weird. But there should be one to two people in our lives. We use this language before of, of sharing that last 10%. Listen, many times you get... Even from stage, looks great about this, sharing that 90%, right? But there's this 10% of our lives that no one sees. Maybe our spouse sees, maybe not, where that just 10% is hidden. But being open through humility is sharing that last 10%. See, Paul here encouraged the church to put on humility and gentleness. Let's keep going, though. He says, with humility and gentleness with patience. So we're not just open, but we must practice a patient presence. A patient presence. It says here, bearing with one another in love. This is the kind of love and life that says, I am here and I am not leaving. Friends, I will tell you today, in this day and age, that's a powerful statement. Is I love you, and I am not leaving. That is a patient presence. And it's not just like bearing with like, ugh, it's bearing with love. It's just this steadfast, patient 
presence. And I know each person in this room right now is thinking of people in their lives that have been that patient presence in their lives, correct? And that person is so meaningful. I picked on Leighton earlier. I picked on him again. Man, 11, 12 years ago, uh, I, I, I blew it spiritually. And I lost friends. And um, I've known Leighton a long time. Leighton was mad at me too. Um, but Leighton was there. And Leighton said, I love you. I'm mad at you. And Jesus loves you. And um, that person being there in spite of my sin gives that person a picture of Christ that cannot happen in a thousand sermons, correct? It is this patient presence in our lives. And friends, here's the thing is you need that person in your life, but also you are called to be that person in someone else's life. Who in your life are you that patient presence for? Who in your life can you turn to that you know if you blow it is still going to be there? This is family love, right? This is familial love. I cannot leave my sister. I wish I could sometimes. I can't leave her. She's there, right? We can't leave those people. And what Paul is telling us today is that we, the church, walk in the same way with this patient presence. A life invitation is a patient life. And finally here in verse 2, he says this right here in verse 3, that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager to maintain. That does not describe our church many times, does it? Listen, no one drifts into unity. Unity takes work. It really, really does. And we have to be eager to do this. This word eager is an action word. It means that we are going to go and we're going to do something with this. It's a, it's a practical word. And here is where we meet openness and patience in the invitational life it meets at the table and not a metaphorical table here's the truth openness patience are lived out at your table in your table in your table in your table and my table it's where the church gets on the ground and becomes the church does that make sense that God has gifted us. And throughout the history, I was reading the Gospels this week. And I just read about Jesus for a little while. And I found in about an hour of reading, almost 20 times where Jesus was breaking bread with others. This was the ministry of Jesus. Acts 2, when the church first starts, it said they broke bread daily in homes. This was the rhythm of Jesus and the early church. And we've traded those rhythms of breaking bread at the table, of working things out in truth and love. We traded that for a once a week expert on stage telling us what to do. And then we go out, live our best life by ourselves, and we're surprised when we're tossed to and fro by those things, correct? It's because we have lost the practice of simply being the church at the table. This is not done on a Sunday. This is not an event. The table The table is the center of the life and ministry of the church. So this week, uh, we had our missional community. It was Wednesday. We've all been there, correct? It's been a long week. January was like 47 days this year, apparently. And it just would not end. And it was just one of those weeks, me and Trace, we were getting kids in the car, and we're exhausted, right? And if I'm confessing as a pastor, I did not want to go. 
that fair to say? Did not want to go. And uh, we get there, um, we prayed together, we read some scripture, and then for two hours we simply sat there and ate a meal and had gospel conversations. There was, there, listen, there was no like, you know, weeping and wailing, confessing of sins. There was, but there was, this, there was this gentleness that was present. There really was. There was people that knew me, that loved me, that pointed me towards Christ, but, and then encouraged me. And it was this beautiful, I, I left there with my soul restored. Does that make sense? And, and here's the tension that we face today. In my mind, on some level, I think that night is a waste. I think unless we spend two and a half hours in Bible, I am pro-Bible study. But we have to learn how to take the Bible from study and flesh it out in life at the table. What does God's word mean to you? How is God's word bearing down on you? Not just in a theoretical, studious kind of way, but how does it apply to your life? Where are your struggles this week? Where we're actually known by other people. I've got to keep going. We need more truth shared at the table. We need someone speaking to the deepest parts of our soul at the table. But here's the issue. We don't know how to live this life because we have this sacred, secular divide. Here's what I mean. We think of the table as the place that we go to to share common interests, talk about sports, our jobs, politics. We have no framework for how to have gospel conversations at the table. We have no idea how to challenge. Many times we don't want to do imitation. We want to stay at home by ourselves, right? But we don't know how to challenge. How do I begin to actually challenge someone in the faith? But remember, what challenge is, is simply pointing them towards Jesus. So I've got three things for you for the language of challenge. Three ways this week someone in your life, at your table, that you can challenge. Here's the first thing. Listen. Just listen. What do you do first? Just listen. Here's how you listen. This this is going to sound very simple. Ask them, how are you doing? This is a a pastor trick. You'll be amazed when you ask somebody, how are you doing? And if you just shut up and look them in the eye, you'll be amazed at what they will tell you. People are dying to be heard. And we have a table, we have a voice, we have ears. Invite someone in, ask them how they're doing. How was your week? How's work? What was the worst part? What was the best part? Just ask them how they're doing and then be quiet and simply listen. And here's the secret. Here is what you're listening for. And I believe the power of the Spirit can, can illuminate and help us listen as well. You're listening for this. What are they trusting more than Jesus? Not, well, they, they're bad with their money. Not, well, they, their kids are out of control. Those are all symptoms right there, right? Ask, listen, where are they not trusting Jesus? So first, just listen. Just listen. Second step, ask questions. Ask questions. I've got two questions for you. And I will tell you, these, question, these questions, they take boldness. They take newsflash the followers of Jesus are a bold people here are the questions how are you not trusting in Jesus through this situation it's work it's money it's kids it's the marriage whatever it is how are you not trusting Jesus 
Next question. What would it look like to trust in Jesus through this situation? If you were to trust God and not worry about money, what would it look like? Last step. So we listen, we ask questions. Last thing, we point to Jesus. We point to Jesus. We don't point for ways to get better. Jeff Vanderschelt says this. I think it's really good. Many wrongly believe that speaking the truth in love is actually just speaking hard words to each other with loving hearts. You have bad breath, but since I love you, I've got to speak the truth in love. We want, to, we want you in our group, but you aren't very kind to others, and as a result, people don't want to be around you. I'm speaking the truth in love. <laughs> That's good. Too often, when we people answer to their questions or solutions to their problems, we give them something other than Jesus. If they are struggling with their finances, we give them the best budgeting plans we know of. If they work with the relational discord, we teach them communication techniques. If they are struggling with doubt, we challenge them to just believe, promising that it will all get better if they do. But we fail if we don't give them Jesus. Here's what you do. Remind them that Jesus is better than blank. Write that down. Sorry, please write that down. Remind them that Jesus is better than blank. We sing this song that Jesus is better like once a month, right? It's because he is. And, it's, and listen, I need you to remind me as I worry about our church, as I worry about my kids, as I lose it on Tracy sometimes, I need you to remind me that Jesus is better. I'll give you an example. I was talking to, I've talked to people many times about this, about uh, relational discord, right? He just mentioned this in this, in this uh, quote where they are just done with somebody else. They are done with this person because this person has sinned this way, sinned this way, sinned this way, and sinned this way, correct? And and they were sinned against. I could not deny that at all. I simply pointed them to Jesus and said, wasn't Christ also sinned against? I said, yes. Do you trust that he is better than their sin against you? Yes. Let's move forward. And I will tell you, this is a discipline that, that you learn over time, that takes time. But here's what I know about you in this room. You do many things that, that others can't do. We can all walk and learn this discipline of speaking challenging words, of pointing people towards Jesus. We just have to practice this. So what's next? Where do we start? I've just got one step for us this week. For every person in this room, invite one person to your table this week. One person, one family. Uh, uh, last week, got, uh, Luke had you get a prayer partner. Maybe it's that person and their family. I have no idea. But invite one person to your table. And maybe this week you just listen. You, you don't feel bold enough to like ask the questions and, and point to Jesus. Just listen. Begin this practice, right? So my wife ran 12 miles yesterday. Sorry, Trace, I know you're mad at me right now. Uh, that's super impressive. I got tired just thinking, I texted her like hour two, like, are you alive? Because I couldn't imagine that. But her and Lindsay and Emily started this months ago, and they started with one mile, correct? We, we don't run 12 miles right away, do we? But here's my question. We all can invite someone into our table this week. Because here's what, here's what I'm excited about, and I, I'm out of time is I get excited thinking about the table, your table, my table being the center of our lives and, the, and our ministry as well, that each of us 
we have a little, a little altar at our house where we go and we do the work of God. We invite others in and deeper and deeper so that we begin to speak truth and love, live invitation and challenge with each other. And over time, weeks, months, years, we look up and the body of Christ is joined together in all its messy ways. Where there's Democrats and Republicans speaking truth and love to each other. My mind is blown right now thinking about that, correct? We see this beautiful expression of the church. And here's what happens. Our body grows in this picture of the kingdom of God. And then what happens is the world does take notice. And they see these people who should be different, who love each other, who share life at the table. And we invite them in. And we see God's kingdom in a little way come down here on earth in our small little lives. And for me, that is something worth giving my life for, correct? It is much more than just showing up and being a part of some kind of thing. It is being a part of the kingdom work of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, my goodness, you are so good to us. Uh, We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to share, to live to encourage each other with, Father. But here's what we ask right now, Father, that you will simply speak to us in this moment, Father. The truth of your gospel is powerful. Let us respond for whatever step you're asking us to take with with worship and obedience today. And let you receive all the glory from that today. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our ushers, our community servers are right here. We're going to take communion now. And if you're a guest here, just some information. The way you do this, in a few moments a line will form. You'll get in line. You'll take the bread. You'll dip it in the juice. And you will partake. Now, this is for people that aren't members of our church. But we do ask that you are a member of God's church. You put your faith in Christ to take this with us. Before you come, I would encourage you, take time, uh, talk with God. Ask him what he's leading you today to do. Come when you're ready. I'll be in the back if you want to pray.